0: Good morning again. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. We read from Matthew 19 just now to, because it's a parallel passage. And I think that uh, this is a very important passage, Matthew 19 and Mark 10. It, it hits something that is, is in a critical state in our culture particularly in our country we have we have the opinion of the masses basically denying the sanctity of marriage Uh, you don't have to be uh, real clear on your observation of our culture to recognize that marriage isn't held in high esteem Uh, pretty much anybody can get married for any reason Uh, in fact uh, we know that uh, you don't have to marry anybody of the opposite sex. We know that in fact there's uh, places that allow um, polygamous marriages, which means more than one spouse. Um, and we know that in other places that that the, they're testing the waters of marrying um, things that aren't human as marriage partners. And so marriage really isn't Uh, revered in our day and it seems this is nothing new based on what we've just heard read. I want to read for you Mark's version of this same story. You'll see a few differences, more of a a distinct uh, rendition of it here in Mark, a little more concise. As we know by now, Mark is Mr. Concise, right, in his rendition. But listen to these words written by Mark concerning the same issue. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him, and again, as it was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him again. Uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? A man answered, And, and he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we have a a fairly contemporary issue in front of us, don't we, concerning marriage and how we as Christians ought to think about it. In fact, not just Christians, but everybody ought to think about it. Certainly we as Christians. But I want to show you here, starting with the question of the Pharisees that came and approached Jesus, how this was a really a bogus question. It wasn't really a matter of discovery for them. They weren't interested in information. They were interested in revealing Jesus' true opinions on the matter. So, let's let's look here at the bogus question by first looking at the social or social slash spiritual atmosphere of Jesus' day. What was going on in Jesus' day concerning these things? And I think that it's true that there are few markers uh, of health in any society uh, greater than the prevailing view of marriage. You wanna know how healthy or unhealthy a particular uh, society is? Look at their view of marriage. What do they think marriage is? How sacred do they think it is? And you will discover what we discover about Jesus' day, that the health, both social and spiritual health, of his culture was in serious condition. What is the view of marriage in our day? I referred to this earlier Marriage, of course, is not viewed as God defines it in this country. I think that's easy to see. Marriage is no longer a covenant between a man and a woman before God, but any two people or more, regardless of gender, can decide to get married for any benefit they choose. Divorce is also just as acceptable as marriage, isn't it? That's played out by the at least 50% divorce rate. When a marriage runs its course in the culture, there's no real stigma with changing partners, families, for the sake of personal fulfillment, because after all, it is about me, right? Uh, The Old Testament taught, and this may shock some of you, but the Old Testament taught uh, that adultery was punishable by execution. That kind of would cut back on the adultery factor, you would think. Um, But by the time Jesus showed up, because of Roman rule and the disintegration of society, Very few, if any, were executed for adultery. You remember John 8, where Jesus had to explain mercy uh, to the Pharisees that were asking about this woman who was caught in adultery. They wanted to see if he would convict her and, and suggest that she be put to death. But this particular prevailing attitude in Jesus' day, along with the significant misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 24, from which they got Their comments about Moses allowing for divorce led to a wholesale divorcing of spouses in Jesus' day. It was rampant. Exchanging spouses, dysfunctional families in society. The burning question in Jesus' day came from Deuteronomy 24.1. Let me read it for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she departs out of his house. That's, that's the passage, the only passage in the Old Testament that refers to this particular issue. And so they, the Pharisees, brought this to Jesus and said, what do you say about this, Jesus? Knowing that the prevailing idea of the people was very liberal in this regard. What does, in fact, some indecency mean? You find some indecency in your spouse and you can divorce him or her. If this was our attitude, we would all be single, right? Or remarried. And that's in, ca- that's in fact the case here. So many of these people had been remarried, divorced and remarried, divorced and remarried, that this was a marriage and divorce merry-go-round in Jesus' day. There were two schools of thought in Jesus' day that determined the opinions of the people. There was the, first of all, liberal rabbinical school of Hillel, which interpreted Deuteronomy 24-1 as broadly as you possibly could imagine. You could divorce your spouse for any reason, including overcooking a meal, according to this rabbi, even being less attractive than someone else you may have your eye on would also qualify for an indecency. Or making a negative comment about your mother-in-law. I would have been divorced a long time ago, evidently. (laughs) Or wearing a tunic that was a tad too short and exposing your ankles, women, was grounds for divorce, it's an indecency. But the second rabbinical, or second school of thought in Jesus' day was the conservative rabbinical school of Shammai. So the first, the the liberal, was Hillel. The second is Shammai, which interpreted the passage in Deuteronomy a lot more strictly. Rabbi Shammai, Shammai taught that only in extreme cases, short of adultery, was divorce permitted. Something indecent could not mean adultery because, remember, when Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 24, if you were caught in adultery, what happened to you? You were executed. And so he couldn't have meant that. Some indecency was something just below that, Shammai taught, something extreme short of adultery. As you can imagine, the acceptable and preferable opinion of divorce was liberal, which affirmed any reason you wanted. And it's interesting how this this, uh, sway towards the liberal interpretation of Scripture continues today. Right? If we, if we can get a Bible teacher to tell us that our sin isn't so bad, we'll all congregate around him and, and you know, text his quotes back and forth. Right? Well, did you know that so-and-so said it's it's justifying our behavior, which is what was taking place here. This was the social atmosphere of Jesus' day. What was the social atmosphere of Moses' day? <clears throat> what was the condition of the hearts of the people? that Moses wrote this to well what did Jesus say the condition of their heart was he said Moses wrote this to you why because of the hardness of your hearts back then your hearts were hard then as they are now Jesus said to these Pharisees so during Moses day the people had already drifted from being spiritually whole remember he wrote this in the wilderness which is basically defined by their rebellion, isn't it? Isn't that what we learned from reading the Exodus account of the people of Israel? The, The Exodus, including their travels in the wilderness for 40 years, was defined by, marked by, spiritual rebellion. They weren't really interested in pleasing God with their lives, instead it was all about personal comfort, selfishness, On display so by the time Moses wrote Deuteronomy the people of Israel had already wandered from God on his will so now let's look with that background now I think you can understand the sinister motive of the Pharisees when they asked Jesus is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife they knew that the masses wanted to be lining up with Hillel, the liberal they also knew that Jesus wouldn't line up with him. And so they asked the question, what do you think, Jesus? Listening, Now the whole crowd's listening to Jesus' answer. Have you ever been there? When someone asks you what you believe about something and you know that everybody else in the room does not believe that? Well, I believe the Bible, yeah, I believe the Bible. <laughs> know what this is what they wanted they wanted to discredit Jesus in the face of all these people they wanted to look like they wanted him to look like an extreme fundamentalist so people would discredit him and walk away would stop following this was the motive of the Pharisees they didn't want information they just wanted to portray Jesus as a wacko and remember Every detail of scripture is important. You remember where it said that they, this conversation took place? In the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Whose kingdom was that? Remember? Herod. And what had Herod just done to John the Baptist for his opinions about marriage? He had him executed, right? And so if the Pharisees could get Jesus to align himself with John the Baptist's opinions about marriage, maybe Jesus would be arrested and executed as well. This was in Herod's kingdom. Let's look at Jesus' decisive answer on the matter. And first of all, you can see here in the passage that that Jesus took them to Moses' command. So let's look at... This command from Moses they brought up Deuteronomy 24 1 and it had been interpreted for centuries uh, the way I described the rabbi Hillel interpret it but if you look closely at the verse back in Deuteronomy 24 1 Moses doesn't condone divorce does he he says if you're divorced He doesn't say, I give you freedom to divorce. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't condone it whatsoever. Nowhere in the passage of Deuteronomy 24 does Moses give permission or command divorce. They had completely misinterpreted Deuteronomy 24, word for word. Let's look at God's command. So, first of all, Jesus shows them that Moses didn't command divorce, he didn't permit divorce. That was their interpretation of Moses' words, which was wrong. And he, and he affirms their error by taking them to God's command in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, again, let's, I want to remind you of what you heard read in Matthew 19 to begin this portion of our church service of the word. Matthew 19 is a record of the same interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus. But Matthew goes into much more detail. If any of you have seen The Chosen, have any of you seen The Chosen? How does he describe Matthew? How does he portray Matthew? Just a detail guy, right? He's he's carrying this booklet around. He's kind of OCD on everything. Uh, And there's likelihood that's possible. I mean, he was a tax collector, after all. He was counting pennies and beans. Um, and so this is likely the case with Matthew, which is why his, his record of all the events of Jesus' ministry is much more detailed than Mark's. Mark is basically hitting the high points like you would throw a rock across a lake and it skips as it does. No, uh, Matthew wants the details, and he wants you to know the details. And so Matthew, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, you may want to turn there real quickly because he says details that we miss in Mark 9. Let's, let's look real quickly, if we could, at Matthew 19, and I want to point out a few things. But first of all, I want you to hear that Jesus did, could care less about the teachings of Hillel or Shammai. He was interested in what the Word of God said. Not some speculative rabbi. So this this record in in Matthew 19 on Jesus' teaching of divorce gets into the detail. Look at verse 4 of Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He really puts them in their place. He he says, I'm certain you've read this. This, is, this happened more on one occasion, didn't it, with Jesus and the Pharisees, making sure they knew that, that they weren't as smart as they thought they were. You've read this, right, <laughs> kind of response. But Jesus, instead of following this um, rabbi speculation, he went straight to the exposition of Scripture. And he did so by taking them to Genesis chapter, 20, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. And this is what he was quoting from. This, at last, is bone of my bones, Adam said, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh so in Matthew, Jesus takes them back to the creation account, the the origination of marriage to explain his opinion, to say marriage is actually God's idea between one man and one woman. That would say a lot about our contemporary view of marriage, wouldn't it? No one should separate this man and woman once they've been married, according to God. According to God, divorce was inconceivable and in fact impossible in the beginning, partly because there was no one else to marry. It was Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Anne, and it wasn't Adam and Eve and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. And so there was really no option for them. And I think Jesus quoted from Genesis for a few reasons, two particularly. One, to emphasize intimacy the intimacy of marriage. It is the most intimate of all human relationships Two become one flesh. There is no deeper relationship than the marriage relationship in human relationships. And then secondly, to emphasize permanence. He he quoted from Genesis two to emphasize intimacy and secondly, permanence. And Jesus added his own divine commentary on the Genesis record. He said, so they are no longer two, Matthew 19, six, by the way, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. There was a permanence to the marriage covenant. There was an intimacy to the marriage covenant. God's ideal has always been monogamous. Now, I want you to hear this, men and women. Monogamous, not monotonous. <laughs> marriage. Relationship. Intimate. Intimate enduring marriage relationship and when we deviate from that we have deviated from God's standard God's model in Adam and Eve we all know that divorce is a tragedy it's always a divergent from God's ideal there's no such thing as positive divorce even when divorce is biblically justified it's not a positive divorce I've had divorces in my family and I've heard how their kids really believed it was for the best. My siblings would tell me when it was going on, uh, well, our kids are so much happier now. They're saying we should have done this a long time ago. Really? And these are junior high age children? Well, I don't believe that was the case. There's no way to put a positive spin on divorce, no matter what the reason. The unbiblical divorce is always sinful, and sin is always behind every divorce, whether it's biblical or unbiblical. The Pharisees' question in Matthew 19 is questioning Jesus' stance on the matter. What do you say, Jesus? If Moses made provision for divorce in the law, why do you have a problem with it, Jesus? And Jesus' answer was, well, actually, he didn't. Your hearts were hard. This is what God's standard is. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. That's how he handled them. They were trying to back Jesus into a corner. And Jesus gave four reasons in his answer in Matthew 19 connected with Mark 10, four reasons why God opposes divorce. The first is this, because marriage is indissoluble. It's an indissoluble union between one man and one woman. Matthew 19, four records Jesus beginning his answer by saying, have you not read, in the beginning, They were male and female. In spite of their supposed expertise in the Old Testament, Jesus made it clear that they really didn't understand it. Adam and Eve from the biblical pattern formed the biblical pattern of marriage. Since the beginning, God made them male and female to be together throughout life. Secondly, I think Jesus quoted from Genesis, uh, or four reasons that God opposed divorce, was because of the glue of that union. The two shall become one flesh. The Hebrew word that is translated in the ESV, hold fast, that's what it says in Mark and in Matthew, hold fast or joined in the uh, King James, communicates a very strong connection. You shall hold fast to his wife. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There is that glue of the union. The word can be translated and is translated in other places in the Bible as fasten its grip, stay close, stick together, and here's all of our favorite, stuck. (laughs) Stuck. It is biblical to say that I am stuck in my marriage. Right? This is what the word means. You are stuck where you are in marriage. You are holding fast. You are joined together with. It's the glue of the union. The, The third reason that God is opposed to divorce, according to Jesus, is because of the unbreakable unity of the marriage bond. This bond is unique and designed by God to be powerful and to resist all things. So much so that two individuals, when they are joined in the the, the marriage ceremony, become one individual, one before God. And then finally, the fourth reason that God opposes divorce is because it's God's work. Marriage is God's work. He invented it. He wants man and woman to be joined together to live throughout life together. And of course, man and woman, he grants this gift to man and woman, the common grace of fulfilling what that union produces, and in most cases, that's children. So when divorce takes place, it destroys something that God has made and is in, that is making in the production of children. So if you think about the invention of marriage by God in the garden with pre-fallen Adam and Eve, so marriage was invented before sin entered the world, right, you, you got your chronology right. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were married in God's sight. There, there was never an argument in their marriage. Think about that. Can you even think of marriage without thinking of arguments? There was never an argument in their marriage. There was never a disagreement, even. There there was no, you know, positive debate, as we like to uh, define our arguments. They worked side by side to fulfill the directives that God gave them in the garden. They perfectly complemented one another. But then the fall happened, then sin entered. And with that, marriage struggles began that divine harmony that God intended and that they experienced in the garden was disrupted and every single married couple since that time has struggled to be what they should be before God and, before, and with their spouse. And how so? How did this happen? How does sin change things so drastically? Well, if, if you read Genesis 3, you see the curse, right? The curse that, that God gave to Adam and to Eve Now this is what Genesis 3.16 says concerning Eve, the wife. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That was part of the curse. And it's not like, oh, I desire my husband. It's like, I desire his position is what the idea is. I wanna be in charge of this relationship. I don't wanna be a follower, I wanna be the leader. That is now the curse upon the women in every marriage. If you are honest and examine your marriage, you'll see that this is something that is ongoing. Now, as the wife seeks to be independent of their husband's authority, the husbands try to dominate the relationship to get their will. Husbands also received a curse, and they try to suppress their wives' revolt against their authority by harsh, ungracious, and autocratic means. That is the curse, right? So the women want to be in charge. The men can't stand that thought, and so they're harsh with their wives, which is why you see instruction in the New Testament concerning marriage of Paul telling them the exact opposite. Wives, respect your husband's position and authority. Husbands, love your wives, cherish your wives. The opposite of the curse. Because, because of sin, we tend the opposite way. And of course, that creates conflict. Let's look at the clarifying conclusion that we see here in Mark and in Matthew. Jesus in Matthew 19, 9, uh, includes a exception clause. There's an exception clause to you shouldn't divorce Except for what? Marital unfaithfulness is what Jesus said. Um, how should we interpret that in Matthew 19? Mark doesn't even mention it, as we would expect. But why did Matthew include it? And what does it mean? Marital unfaithfulness? The Greek word there, unfaithfulness, is porneia, where we get our word pornography from. Uh, Greek dictionaries say that porneia means fornication, prostitution, or any kind of unlawful intercourse. That's what Jesus was referring to. When we apply this word to married persons, it means marital unfaithfulness, except for, Jesus said, marital unfaithfulness. And so it would include all these things that I just described. One important point is that of Uh, All of these kinds of offenses were originally punished by execution. So these sins resulted in the termination of a marriage by death, which automatically freed the person to remarry. (laughs) Uh, Why are you eligible for remarriage? Well, because my husband was put to death uh, for sin, is what was said probably quite often. Uh, But... Because Israel, like I said, because in Jesus, by Jesus' time was under Roman rule and the death sentence was almost impossible to obtain from the Roman government, hardly anybody in Jesus' day was being executed. The point was that Jesus was stricter than any of the Pharisees, any of the positions of the rabbis that went before him, even more strict than Deuteronomy 24. That was Jesus' position. When he said that the only grounds for divorce was marital unfaithfulness, it was a shock to those who were listening. Probably because most of them had been divorced. (laughs) Jesus' teaching was simply that the only acceptable reason for divorce was marital unfaithfulness. And some, of course, in our day, would say that abandonment falls under marital unfaithfulness. But that isn't what Jesus was saying. He used the word porneia. Or Mark and Matthew used the word porneia. Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. Aramaic. But it's something that Paul, this this additional exception clause about uh, abandonment is something that Paul added to the teaching, the biblical teaching of divorce. So if you divorce for any other reason and remarry, you have committed adultery, Jesus says. Jesus' exception clause would have been viewed like this. No matter how rough things are going, regardless of the stress and strain or whatever is said about compatibility and temperament, nothing allows for divorce except this one thing, unfaithfulness. It's not like I'm tired of arguing. I don't want to go to that state and live there in that city. I want to be, no, it's for marital unfaithfulness, for porneia. Jesus basically exploded the Mosaic loophole here. The disciples were obviously wide-eyed about it. Uh, they asked him at the end of Mark, uh, Mark 10 the question, uh, and Matthew also asked the same question. They were shocked. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry, they said. If we can't divorce her for any reason except that, <laughs> why marry? Essentially, if you're going to paint us into the corner, we're not going to enter the room, is what the disciples were saying. (laughs) So Jesus' teaching was not only out of sync with his culture, it's also out of sync with our culture, isn't it? We are a me-driven culture. Whatever I want is the primary concern. I must be satisfied. I must be happy. And I must be fulfilled. If not, I have the right, even the obligation, to change things for my own well-being. My Christian counselor told me so. Crazy. As believers, our standard is Jesus and his teaching, not the current culturally accepted norm, even if many Christian counselors are saying so. So since um, Mark opened the can of worms, I want to include Paul's teaching. It's not in uh, Mark 10 or Matthew 19, But I think it's important because we have people in the room who are here in this place, in this place that I'm about to address. Paul's teaching on divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16. You might want to turn there real quickly. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's a lot there, and we don't have time to cover it. But I do want to make a couple points. First of all, when he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, that doesn't mean he's speaking outside of God's will. He's saying, Jesus didn't cover this point. I'm going to. This is inspired scripture. It is just as valid and authoritative as what Jesus said in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. It's God speaking, just not Jesus while he walked the planet. Since Corinth that received Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians was a pagan city and those in the church most likely were married to an unbeliever. What do you do then, Paul? What do you do if, you're, if you come to faith and your spouse remains unsaved? Should I divorce them? No. Paul said, well, and by the way, he had already said two chapters earlier, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Don't be connected with unbelievers, especially in something so intimate as marriage. So what do we do? Do we divorce them? And in chapter 7, he answers it, and he says no. No. If they're willing to live with you, live with them. If not, if they, if they abandon you, there's the abandoned clause, then you're free to remarry, divorce and remarry. This is what Paul teaches. So if the believer is abandoned by the unbelieving spouse, they are free to divorce and remarry. The one abandoning has broken the marriage bond. They have committed marital unfaithfulness. So if we were to give a biblical summary of divorce and remarriage. And by the way, there are other opinions on the matter um, of good people, Uh, some more strict um, than others. But a biblical summary of divorce and remarriage, it seems that there are two biblical reasons for divorce, sexual unfaithfulness and abandonment. Secondly, remarriage is allowed in three cases. One, the death of a spouse. Two, When one's spouse is guilty of sexual immorality and unwilling to repent. That's another can of worms. What if your spouse is sexually immoral, but they are repentant? Do you take the opportunity? (laughs) Now's my chance. Uh, I don't think so. I think the Lord would say, forgive. In fact, I don't think. I know. He said so. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. I think it goes. Right? So... There's, there's three reasons that remarriage is allowed. Death, when one spouse is guilty of sexual immorality and unwilling to repent, and when one spouse abandons the marriage. When they abandon the marriage, they walk away. They say, forget it. Some biblical teachers also believe that remarriage is permissible when divorce took place prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's some speculative work there. Here's what I'm going to end with, because in a room, in a group this size, there's likely a few who fall into this category. Uh, What do you do if you're the offending party? What do you do if you're the one who abandoned the marriage? You're the one who committed sexual immorality. What do you do then? And you're now walking with Christ, and you're married maybe to someone else. What do you do? Um, Is there a place left for you at the table? Are you welcomed in Christ's church? Or are you condemned to that level of second-class Christianity? Well, we know that sexual immorality and abandonment are gross sins, don't we? Uh, But we also know what the gospel says about gross sins, don't we? What's it say about gross sins? All but these... Is that what the gospel says? No. It says all sins are forgiven. All things have become new. We know what the gospel says. So, in trying my hardest not to encourage sinful behavior, I must tell you as a minister of the gospel that the person and work of Jesus Christ covers every single sin, including the heinous ones, including sexual immorality and abandonment. Um, uh, And and you need to know that adulterers will be in heaven, murderers will be in heaven. Um, We are all saved by grace, aren't we? There is no second-class Christian. Um, We've all been pardoned from our sin by the same Savior because of His loving mercy and grace. So, what do you do? You confess your sin and move on. You confess your sin and move on, which you've probably already done. So, I want to end with this from Ephesians. Uh, Since I'm outside of Mark by about three quarters of a mile, um, I want to have you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And it was sprinkled throughout our liturgy this morning. But I want—I want to end with this. This is this is God's ideal, spoken through the apostle Paul. He says this: Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And unfortunately, many pastors end there. (laughs) But because we're committed to exposition, we continue. Husbands, there we go. It's interesting, when you talk to wives, this word is underlined, husbands. And when you talk to husbands, wives is underlined in verse 22. don't know why that is, but it seems to be. Verse 25, husbands, on the other hand, love your wives just as, not as, but just as is the Greek word. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And how did he do that, pray tell? He gave up his life for his bride, the church. How are we doing, husbands? When was the last time you gave up your life for your wife? Gave up your desires? give up your opinions, give up your rights. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I think that's the role of the husband in the marriage covenant, by the way. What are we doing, husbands about prevent, presenting our wives before Christ as spotless? I know ultimately that's his job, but we've been given the role according to this. In the same way husbands should love their wives, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, be glued to, stuck with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying uh, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's the biblical standard. Let's pray. Lord, this isn't the first time we've heard these things, and yet every time we hear them, we, we feel a, a, a tinge of conflict, a little conviction um, that uh, causes us to, to be humbled. We ask, Lord Jesus, that, that you would renew our commitment to this marriage bond, if we're married, that you have placed us in. Um, And that we would commit ourselves to uh, your standard, your, your teaching, your commands. Oh, Father, I pray that you would bless our marriages in this church, that they would be vibrant and healthy and strong, that you would use them to exemplify Christ's love for his church, that they would be used to actually Share the gospel with friends and neighbors. That the husbands in this church would love their wives like Christ loved the church. And the wives in this church would respect and and honor their husbands as we, the church, respect and honor Christ Jesus, our Savior. Bless us, I pray in your name. Amen.